sermon text this morning is in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, verse 27. That's page 834 in the Bible in front of you. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him, led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down, kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then the two robbers, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, but the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusted God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is God's word. You may be seated. pray. Lord, give us understanding. Many of us, Lord, have heard this before, have heard these words, have imagined this scene, seen it in movies, and we think we know what it means. Lord, I pray this morning that you would, you would give us fresh insight. Help us to see your word through new eyes. Give us ears to hear. Give us understanding of what it is that you have for us here in your word. Lord, we know that only comes from the Spirit's power, so we ask for your Spirit's help. I say this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning with a disclaimer. For those of you who have grown up close to Christianity, if you've grown up in the church or around the church, there's a common error that that we fall into when we're seeking to understand what's happening here with the crucifixion of Jesus. It's an error that you and I are more prone to, perhaps, than any other group of people in history because of the particular age and place that we live in and the way that our culture And the error 
is to reduce the meaning of the cross to the pain that Jesus endured. It goes something like this. Maybe you've heard this before. The beatings and the crucifixion hurt Jesus. And then you would hear at that time a detailed description of what it means to be flogged with a cat of nine tails and how the skin is ripped off Jesus' back, rendering him unable to carry the crossbeam. And then, and then the crown of thorns hurt Jesus. And someone will describe the length of the thorns on this particular vine in that region and how excruciating it would have been to have that, that crown pressed into his head and how much pain it, it would have caused him. And more pain further as, as every strike from that, that, that reed, from the staff that, that hit the crown on his head. And then when we get to the cross, there's a, there's a description detailed of the nails that caused Jesus tremendous pain and as they were driven into his wrists and his ankles. And then you'd, you would hear, at this point, a, a physiological description of how the cross kills, not through blood loss, but through asphyxiation. Because the person being crucified must raise himself up against the pain of the nails to take a breath. But eventually he's so weak he can't do it anymore and he, and he suffocates. And the moral of that message is that because Jesus endured these things for you, it is evidence that he loves you, therefore you should love him back. It's an appeal your emotions. Sympathy evangelism. It's an argument from pity to worship Jesus. And when you think about it, it's not that different from those commercials. I remember growing up, Saturday morning cartoons would be interrupted. In a commercial for cereal, there'd be a, a, a kid in Somalia, four-year-old, bloated belly, flies on her face, and she's staring at the camera, and then that voiceover comes over. Give to our organization for pennies a day, and we'll give this kid some rice. It's called emotivism. We live in an age where thinking with our emotions is more normal, more acceptable than using logic and reason. If you can make someone feel sorry for you, then you can get them on your side. It's partly how victims have become the heroes Western culture. Something is right or wrong or desirable or undesirable, not because of objective truth, but because of how we feel about it. And because that's the water that we've been swimming in for decades now, our, our evangelism, the way that we communicate the gospel, has been affected by this. We know, and because it's just a reality, that the message of the physical pain of the cross goes a long way in plucking our heartstrings, doesn't it? So we use that as a means of persuasion. You might even be able to, to finagle someone into making a decision to follow Jesus if they feel sorry enough for him. Maybe play a sappy song. Really get the waterworks going and remind people again and again and again how much pain he was in. Listen, we ought not love and worship Jesus because we feel sorry for him or, or because we feel guilty for what he went through. An innocent man was crucified. 
is not the gospel. An innocent man who loves you and was beaten and felt much pain and was killed unjustly is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of all creation. He's the very presence of God. He is the righteous Savior. He is Messiah. That's the good news. So I want to remind you of how we read the Bible. Okay, as far as we are able, and we can't do this perfectly, I, I admit this, but we should strive as far as we are able to remove our cultural lens and our culturally learned ways of thinking and listen carefully to each word the writer uses. What is the human writer? There's two, there's two the, the spirit and, and, and the human, but what is the human writer saying to the people that he's writing to? In his day. And that's how we gain understanding to the text. And when we read it that way, what we see Matthew putting forward for us is not so much Jesus' pain. In fact, he doesn't once mention Jesus' pain. Neither does Mark, nor does Luke, nor does John. Though we cannot deny that Jesus experienced unimaginable pain. It's true that Jesus suffered. That is mentioned throughout the New Testament. But what Matthew puts forward for us, what is really clear in our text, is not Jesus' pain, but Jesus' identity. The suffering reveals Jesus' identity. The Roman soldiers hate him and mock him because he is king of the Jews. The people who hurled insults at him while he's on the cross, they hate him and mock him because he is the new and better temple and he is son of God. The religious leaders hate him and mock him because he is savior and he is ruler and because he trusts in God. And when we read it plainly, not through an emotivist lens, but when we just look at the words, it's clear that this passage is about who Jesus is. Jesus is Messiah. And and Matthew's message for us, as, as we'll study this morning, is that though Jesus was mocked and though he was beaten and spit upon and crucified, his sufferings do not contradict his Messiahship. In fact, the opposite is true. Jesus' sufferings fulfill the scriptures and so prove that he is Messiah. And because Jesus is Messiah, he is worthy of our praise and worship and devotion. Not because we feel sorry for him, but because he is worthy. So we're going to divide this text up into into three sections. And and I'm just going to tell you ahead of time, there's a lot in the text that we just won't have time to get to. But but there are three, three main sections that we have here. The gospel according to the Roman soldiers, the gospel according to the crowds, and the gospel according to the religious leaders. Okay, so those are our three sections. We're going we're gonna to frame it that way. The first section is the longest. We spend the most time with the soldiers, a little bit of time with the crowds, a little bit of time with the religious leaders. All three of these groups you're going to see, ironically, proclaim the most essential truths of who Jesus is. And all three do so in fulfillment of God's word. That's 
what Matthew's message is for us. So let's get into the text. We'll see how this plays out. So to give you a little context, uh, it's been a while since we were in, in Matthew. We've been, uh, had the privilege of, of hearing Josh, Josh preach from 1 John. But uh, last we left off here in Matthew, Jesus had been brought before Pilate for judgment. Remember, the, the, uh, the religious leaders could not have him sentenced but only the, the Roman governor could. So they bring Jesus before Pilate for a judgment. Pilate sort of, kind of, wanted to free him, but not enough to actually do it. So we turn the decision over to the crowds. The crowds are stoked by the, the, the religious leaders, the wickedness of the religious leaders, and they cried out for Jesus' crucifixion. And then, and then when that uproar got to, to, to fever pitch, and close to a riot level, Pilate conceded he hands over Jesus to be crucified. So beginning here in our text in verse 27, these Roman soldiers have received Jesus from Pilate's custody. Now they have him and they take Jesus into what our translation calls the, the governor's headquarters. Now don't think of that like the governor's house. This is more like a, a barracks. So when Matthew says they gathered the whole battalion before him, this is upwards of 600 men. This is a lot of soldiers. So, so whatever building this is, it's large enough to to hold hundreds of soldiers. They're all gathered to get there together, and they're going to have their, their fun with this man accused of, of being a revolutionary. Now, you, didn't, you need to know a little bit of history here, and I'll, I'll give it to you. You don't have to come in already knowing it. Contemporary to this Jesus story is historically the story of, of growing unrest amongst the Jews in Judea. So not long before this episode, the Jews had revolted, actually. And they had been shut down, but then more and more there's this, this party uh, called the Zealot Party, and they're increasing in power and increasing in influence and carrying out these violent guerrilla attacks uh, on the highways against the Romans who are in control. All right, so, so it's very likely that these soldiers here in, in the, the governor's headquarters with Jesus, some of these soldiers new comrades who had been killed by Jewish revolutionaries. And here they are in possession of a man that they believe to be one of these upstarts. They're tasked with crucifying him, but first they're going to carry out a little vengeance first. Jesus, they, they know, is being crucified because he claims to be Messiah, right? King of the Jews. And so they're going to treat him accordingly. We see that in the text. They're they're going to feign as if he's king. So they take off his clothes, put on this scarlet robe, and this would be a, a red cloak that, that the higher-ranking Roman officials would have worn. Uh, they put this cloak on Jesus. They, they fashion this crown for him made of thorns, give him a staff, and, and sort of pretend that he's a king, and they bow down. and Hail, king of the Jews! Hail, king of the Jews! There in verse 29. Now, hail is what they would have said to Caesar. Their king, hail Caesar, was their, the, 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 the rightful word to say when a soldier sees their Caesar. They're, they're bowing down, though, to Jesus and pretending that Jesus, the king of the Jews, is higher than Caesar. He's Lord over all. And here's the irony of it. Through their mocking and through their scorn, they are fulfilling the promises of how Messiah is actually crowned king. 
So through, through what Jesus endured under the hands of these men in his suffering, he was becoming more qualified as our Messiah. It was through this scornful, mock-crowning ceremony that he was earning his eternal crown. When they bowed down to him, they were confessing that Jesus is not just king of the Jews. These are they're Gentile, these are Romans, bowing down before the king of the Jews. Only Messiah would ever receive such praise. That's, that's who Messiah was promised to be. The man from the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, Jesse and David, the one whom the nations would bow down to. And that's what's happening here. These soldiers are mocking Jesus as if he were a stray dog, and, and in their hearts they're despising Jesus, they're, they're belittling him. But the Bible teaches us that through their sinful actions, God was perfecting Jesus. He was making him more qualified to receive honor and glory and power. He was making him more qualified to be our great high priest who, who intercedes for us and who makes atonement for our sins. These men were making Jesus Messiah. Hebrews 2 says as much. Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's what's happening. Well, once the Roman soldiers are done with their mocking, it's time to take Jesus to the cross. Verse 31 says they... They put Jesus' clothes back on him, lead him away towards a place called Golgotha, crucify him. Somewhere along the way, a man who, who we've never heard of before, he's previously unknown to us, is forced to carry Jesus' cross. Now, for those of you who have been with us for a little while, you know that I, I've taught you that Matthew is particular about who he names and who he chooses not to name. And if we were to follow that pattern... It seems like the man who helped Jesus carry his cross would be one of the unnamed people. Because Matthew tends to keep our focus on Jesus himself. And yet, here in verse 32, this Simon is an exception to that rule. Matthew names him. Why? Why does this man who isn't named anywhere else outside of this text, or in, in, in same in Matthew, or in Mark and Luke, why does this man have the privilege of being named for all perpetuity? Well, I think this is actually a negative naming. That's what I mean. Matthew is saying that a man had to help Jesus carry his cross, but by telling us his name, it's clear that this man who was conscripted to do this was not one of the disciples. So by identifying the man as Simon of Cyrene, Matthew's showing us definitively that the disciples were not there to help Jesus in his time of need. Nor was there a family member to help him. In fact, the soldiers could not even find a fellow Israelite to help him. A foreigner had to be forced to do the job. What's Matthew telling us here? Jesus has been completely abandoned 
by the very people he came to save. He's alone. But again, we're not, this is not, he's not trying to pull on your heartstrings. That's not what's happening here. What Matthew's showing us, lest we think that his abandonment is somehow contrary to who Jesus is as Messiah, this is yet another detail that shows us he is Messiah. He's fulfilling the scriptures. Psalm 69.20 says of Messiah, I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And even as, as Bob was reading Psalm 22, Psalm 22.11 says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Jesus is alone, he's despised, there's no one to help him, he's without pity from anyone, and all of that fulfills what the scriptures say of Messiah. Again, Jesus' situation is not contrary to his Messiahship. It supports who he is. He's being identified here for us. Well, they arrive at the place of crucifixion. Before hanging Jesus up, Matthew says, they offered him wine mixed with gall to drink. This, we just saw uh, Psalm 69.20. The very next verse, Psalm 69.21 says, uh, For my thirst they gave me sour wine. It's an insult. He's, he's thirsty. But they give him something that's... You, you can't palate. They're insulting him further. It's a mockery of his thirst, and yet again, fulfilling scripture, isn't it? Well, Jesus refuses the bitter drink, and then somewhere between verses 34 of our text and verse 35, he's crucified. And there's something I want to show you here. When you get to verse 35, the crucifixion has already happened. So they take him there, they give him something to drink, he refuses it, and then he's crucified. It's, 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 it's a thing of the past. Look at verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments. The act of crucifying Jesus has already happened. It's, a, it's an afterthought for Matthew. He doesn't even give the crucifying act an actual verb when you look at it in, in the original text. Instead, he uses what's called a participle, and he puts it in the past. Having hung Jesus up, they divided his garments. The active verb here, the focus for us from Matthew, is the dividing of the garments. And since this is the action and focus, the cross is sort of in the background. And that's, that's notable. But it's not, be, it's not because the crucifixion is being ignored. Let me show you what Matthew's doing. Crucifixion is, is a reality. Right? Everybody knew, everyone that, that Matthew was writing to, knew Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. There was never any debate of whether or not Jesus of Nazareth hung on a cross. The debate is over whether or not Jesus is Messiah. Christians believe then, and we believe today, that because Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, and on the third day he rose, he proved himself to be Messiah. We confess that. The Spirit declared Jesus to be the Son of God. 
because of what he went through. Non-Christians, on the other hand, argue Jesus could not be Messiah because he was crucified. The cross is too shameful. No, no anointed king would be killed like this. This is a, a slave's death. The cross was foolishness to them, a stumbling block to them. So Matthew here, knowing, because he's writing a gospel, he knows that his task is to use the Old Testament scriptures to prove Jesus is Messiah. So he doesn't spend too much time talking about the details of the crucifixion. Everybody knows Jesus died on a cross. What shape was the cross in? Matthew doesn't care. Did they use nails? Matthew doesn't point it out. Did the nails go into his wrists or his hands? Matthew doesn't say. Was the cross being placed on a tree or was it on a post? Matthew doesn't say. None of that is in focus. None of that matters because none of that was being debated. Matthew glances us towards the cross and then he pans and zooms the camera in closely on what the soldiers are doing with Jesus' clothes, of all things. Having stripped and hung Jesus, having crucified him, what are they doing with his clothes? And you and I might read this and think, who cares what he's doing? What? He's, the guy's on the cross. Who cares about his clothes? But, but a Jew who knows the Psalms is going to know Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 18 says of Messiah's death, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So Matthew, in order to prove that Jesus is the Messiah from Psalm 22, tells us what they're doing with Jesus' garments. And what does he say? Jesus' garments are getting divided among the soldiers, and they're casting lots for them, exactly as Psalm 22 said would happen. What does that tell us? Just as we confess this morning, Christ died in accordance with Scripture's. These soldiers think they're taking advantage of a worthless criminal, but they're fulfilling the scriptures that show that this man is Messiah. This same theme continues with a little sign that they place above his head. This is Jesus. Look at verse 37. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Again, there's an irony here, isn't there? Because Jesus is King of the Jews. They've rightfully proclaimed Jesus' identity. And yet again, seeing scripture fulfilled. Here he is lifted up. He's lifted up. He's above everyone. And, and above him is the exaltation that he's king of the Jews. What does Isaiah 52, 13, the servant's psalm, say? Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So here is the suffering servant, high and lifted up so that all can see and read exactly who he is. He's the king of the Jews. And while it's, not the, it's certainly not the exaltation that Isaiah had in mind, it's not the exaltation that the disciples had in mind, or certainly that the crowds had in mind, even still, it is the exaltation of Jesus. Lifted up so that the world could read this Ironical gospel message proclaimed by the Roman soldiers, Jesus is king. That's our first gospel message. Let's get to the next, sec next section, the gospel according to the crowds. 
Look at verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So, so in that first section, the gospel according to the soldiers, they proclaimed, ironically, that, that Jesus is king. Two further identities of who Jesus is are being proclaimed here by the crowds. One, Jesus is the temple, which is to say he is the very presence of God. And secondly, he is the son of God. And both of these are massively important, aren't they? When it comes to our understanding of who Jesus is, you can't leave these out. The temple has historically always been understood by God's people to, to, to be the dwelling place of God. He wasn't contained there, but that was his footstool. It was the, the place of his presence. The Jews knew God's presence was to be manifest in the temple. So to them, the temple was a very special place. It, it, it's the place, it was the place that represented to them that they were God's people. He has chosen to dwell with them. If they had the temple, then nothing could go wrong. But their temple reverence had over the years become temple worship. So much so that they trusted in the temple more than God. So when Jesus came teaching, something greater than the temple was here. They hated him for it. They saw, they saw Jesus as a threat to their holy place, a threat to their, their precious idol. Now here's the threat. He's on a cross. He's hanging there and he, he can't. He doesn't pose a danger to their temple anymore. So they think. Now they can safely taunt him. You would destroy the temple in three days. Build it up. Save yourself. What's happening here? The fact is, Jesus is the manifest presence of God. We've been seeing that all throughout Matthew's gospel. He is God with us. We celebrate that at Christmas. He is the promised Messiah who brings the new and better temple. The temple of his own body. And then he ascends into heaven and pours out the Holy Spirit and creates the greater temple, the dwelling place of God, the church. That temple encompasses the earth until Christ returns. And so as they say, you who would destroy the temple, he actually, they're, they're right, he is in the process of being destroyed because he is the temple, as John teaches us. And when they say, you who would raise it up in three days, this little bit of gospel from the this short-sighted crowd will also come true, won't it? The destroyed temple of Christ's body will be raised in three days and then multiplied across the earth wherever Christ is proclaimed. So it's contained in their mockery is God's plan to reconcile the world to himself. They also scoff at Jesus for claiming to be the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, so far, the soldiers and the crowds have been unwittingly correct, okay? So far, with their taunts, we could say these are, these are gospel truths, but, but this one, we need a little bit of help because uh, they're wrong about this one. Jesus is the Son of God. They're, they're right about that. But because 
He is the Son of God. He cannot come down from the cross. So they're, they're misguided. He could have. Don't get me wrong. Jesus had the power to. He told us in the garden, just a, in the last chapter, he could have called 12 legions of angels down to save him. It's not that Jesus lacked the power to come off of the cross, but because he is the Son of God, he would not do it because he would not disobey the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, stayed on the cross in obedience to the Father. And in remaining on the cross, Jesus was accomplishing the mission he had received from the Father. Some argue that the greatest miracle of Jesus was accomplished through the non-miracle of staying on the cross. Because through his, his willingness to remain fixed to the cross, he conquered the power of sin. And he saved us from our bondage to sin. Coming off the cross, though he was able to, though he had the power to, would not have proven he was the son of God. It would have been quite the opposite. Because it would have been disobedience to God. It would have been mission failure. So the crowds are wrong about that. But I want you to notice something else about their, their taunt. If you are the son of God. Now those of you who have been studying Matthew with us for the last few years, that might sound familiar. It's been a while though. Think back to Jesus' baptism and what followed. Immediately after Jesus was baptized, and God said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, where Jesus was, was tempted by the devil. And the devil's temptation was this. If you are the Son of God, exact same words. If you are the Son of God, make bread from stones. If you are the Son of God, have angels rescue you. Essentially, if you are the Son of God, then you should call upon God to rescue you from this awful predicament that you're in. The devil is saying the same thing here through the crowds. If you are the Son of God, come off the cross. But again, it's precisely because Jesus is the Son of God that he remains on the cross. Hebrews 5 teaches us this. Although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So, so through this taunt, and through Jesus' actions, Jesus' true identity as the true Son is revealed to us. There's one more key here that, that we've breezed right past. There's a key in this passage that Matthew uses to guide us to reading him accurately. Look at the way he describes the actions of the crowds. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. We don't see that head wagging in very many places in Scripture, just a couple, once in Jeremiah, but also in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 6 through 7. But I am a worm... Not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They, here it is, they wag their heads. Exact same language. In their mockery about the temple and in saying that Jesus can't be the Son of God, 
they're fulfilling the Psalm 22 prophecy about who Messiah would be. Jesus is not Messiah in spite of their mocking. He's Messiah because of their mocking. The gospel according to soldiers is that Jesus is king of the Jews. The gospel according to the crowds that he is, is that he's the presence of God. He is the son of God. And that brings us to our last group, religious leaders. And their gospel is the fullest of the gospel announcements. Here's their proclamation. Number one, Jesus is the promised Savior. Number two, Jesus is the promised ruler. Number three, Jesus is the righteous one. We'll go in that order, Savior, ruler, righteous one. Look at verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. More of our ironical gospel, isn't it? The fact is, it's because Jesus is saving others that he will not save himself. Isaiah 53 prophesies this, verses 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. That's what's happening here. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he, in his death, bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 said that Jesus, through his death, Messiah, through his death, would save. Jesus is Savior. He is Messiah. He's saving his church through his death. And that's precisely why he will not save himself. Secondly, the religious leaders mock him for being the ruler, the king of Israel. Now, this is similar to the mockery of the soldiers. I'll give you that. This is a little more personal. I want you to see the, the way that they talk about this. Look at the second sentence of verse 42. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And we've seen that. And, but, but look what they say next. And we will believe in him. No, you won't. <laughs> Jesus on the cross is how he becomes king of Israel. We've seen that. We've discussed that already. But look at that ridicule. Come down from the cross and then we'll believe in him. There is an arrogance here that is really easy to overlook. But these men, are, in saying these things, are presuming themselves to be above God. They're making the argument that somehow Jesus needs their belief in order to be king. It's kind of pompous. It's actually very pompous. It's not the case, is it, though? Think all the way back to Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist. When John the Baptist rebuked the religious leaders, he said, God is able from the stones to raise up children for Abraham. So all the way back at the beginning, John was proclaiming to us, God does not need these religious leaders to accomplish his mission. And Jesus doesn't need their endorsement to truly be Messiah. He is Messiah whether or not these self-important men believe it. His, his kingship 
is not dependent on their belief. In fact, it's the other way around. Their belief is dependent on his authority, his sovereignty. In Matthew 11, in one of Jesus' prayers, he revealed to us this truth about the kingdom. Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. He's talking there about, uh, about the reality of belief. God has hidden Christ's identity from the religious leaders. And he's revealed it to the little children. That was a stand-in for the disciples. Jesus said, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Here's what Jesus was teaching then. Knowledge of God, belief, does not come from the will of man, but from the will of God. The Father reveals the Son, the Son reveals the Father. It's exactly what Jesus said. God reveals himself to those whom God chooses to reveal himself. It is God who grants belief. And that belief is not dependent on the volition of these religious leaders. That's what I'm getting at here. They think that they are above God. They will be the one who announced Jesus as Messiah. If they only had a little more evidence, right? If he would just come down from the cross. But these men know that Jesus has given sight to the blind. They know that he is giving, given hearing to the deaf. They know that he has made the lame to walk. They know he's cleansed lepers and raised the dead. And yet they don't believe. Their unbelief is due to their hard hearts, not a lack of evidence. So even if Jesus were to come off the cross, unless the Lord softened their hearts and gave them eyes to see and granted them faith, they would not believe that Jesus is Messiah. Because they could not. Their final gospel proclamation we see in verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. The proclamation is that Jesus is the Son of God the righteous one who trusts in God. And what they're doing when they say this, they are quoting, unbeknownst to them, they are quoting Psalm 22.8 almost verbatim. Look at Psalm 22.8. This is the mocking of those who mocked Messiah in Psalm 22. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It's the same thing, isn't it? So there's a couple things going on here. First of all, Jesus does trust in God. In fact, he trusts in God so purely and so thoroughly that he believes God will deliver him from the grave. That's why he's staying on the cross. It's because of his faith that he's there. And if these religious leaders knew their Bibles as they should, they would know that Psalm 22 teaches that Messiah trusts that the Lord will deliver him. And as a result of his deliverance, Messiah leads his people in praise to the Lord. Psalm 22, verses 22 through 24. It's a lot of 20s. I will tell of your name to my brothers. This is Messiah speaking. In the midst of the congregation, church, 
I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. This is Messiah's instruction to us. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Why, Messiah, should we praise God? For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Messiah trusts that the Lord will hear his prayer. Messiah trusts that the Lord will deliver him. And when the Lord delivers him, we'll see that in a few days, all praise be to God. So through their ignorant taunts, these religious leaders are proclaiming the gospel truth that Jesus is the righteous one. They're fulfilling Psalm 22. Jesus saves, Jesus rules, and he trusts in the Lord. He must be Messiah. There is a great, great irony here that Matthew has just put on display for us. All three of these groups that we've looked at think that they are disproving Jesus' claims by mocking him. And they're actually fulfilling the scriptures and so proving that Jesus is the very man that they don't want him to be. Spirit teaches us in 1 Corinthians 2, None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The devil didn't know it. Rome didn't know it. Pilate didn't know it. The religious leaders didn't know it. But crucifying Jesus completed his mission to save his people and be exalted as Messiah. Now there's three takeaways that I have for you today. And they're not that long. First one is this. Praise Jesus for his obedience. Through his obedience, he became qualified to make atonement for your sins and for mine. At any point, if he, if he had given in to the temptation to come off of the cross, as all of them were calling him to do, if he had come down, we would still be in our sin. Praise Jesus for his obedience. Secondly, Christ's obedience makes it clear that greatness in the kingdom of heaven, Messiah, the exalted one, his greatness is not like greatness in the world. He's taught us that over and over and over again through his gospel. Think back to what he taught James and John. They wanted to sit on his left and his right. Now, did you pick up on that? On Jesus' left and his right were two men on the crosses. James and John wanted those positions, but Jesus taught them back in Matthew 20, called them over to him, said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man, Messiah, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when Jesus, in our text, is just submitting himself to these men, Roman soldiers and the crowds and religious authorities, he's living out this teaching. Through his obedience, 
He's bearing witness to the kingdom reality that seems totally upside down to us. The soldiers and the religious leaders were lording it over him. They were exercising authority over him. And through the suffering that they brought to him, he was becoming their Lord. I think this is especially challenging to us right now. We are in an age of increasing totalitarianism. Undeniable. We can argue about that later if you want to. You're wrong. We are. And the temptation for us, the temptation for us is to show our strength, isn't it? We want to fight back according to the same rules that the wicked are using. That's not Christ's model. I'm, I'm just preaching to myself. Okay, so I'm not beating you up. This is me. I needed this this week. The model of Christ here, something that we need to be cognizant of, to follow Christ is not to show worldly strength, but to trust the Lord all the way to death, to continue to live in obedience to him above all else, never wavering from our beliefs, never faltering from Christ's example, but always seeking to be, to be known first and foremost as Christ followers. Not as those who have worldly strength or worldly power or worldly authority, but as Christ followers. Those who are willing to suffer with him. And there is a whole lot more we could say about this, isn't there? I know you want details right now. I'm not going to give you any. Lord willing, we will have many opportunities to talk about these things. But for now, I, I just want, I want us to simply see, let it sink in as a, as a little seed. The kingdom of heaven is different from the kingdoms of the world. Christ conquered through suffering. Just let that marinate in your heart. Christ conquered through suffering. The third message is for those of you who are not Christians. Here's what I want you to see in this text. Whether you believe Jesus is king or not makes no difference to whether or not he is king. Whether you believe Jesus is king or not makes no difference in whether or not he is king. None of the people in our text this morning believed Jesus was Messiah, and yet through their actions, they were crowning him as Messiah, Lord over all. Whether you believe Jesus is king or not, he will be glorified through your life. He will be glorified through you as an honorable vessel who joyfully makes his salvation known, or he'll be glorified in you as a dishonorable vessel through whom his judgment is known. Either way, he is Messiah, and he will receive the glory due his name. Whether you despise him, as these men did, or whether you worship him, his authority is not dependent on your submission. Each of these groups, all three of them, they all thought that through their actions they were proving that Jesus could not have been Messiah. But through their actions, they were making him king. So those of you who are not following Christ, 
not living in submission to King Jesus, you might believe that because you are not submitting to Jesus as king, he is therefore not king. You're gravely mistaken. His kingship is as real as gravity. You can deny the reality of gravity and you could walk off a cliff. That makes no difference to gravity, does it? You can deny that Jesus has all authority over heaven and earth and you can live your truth. But there will come a day when the lies that you've been living by are uncovered and the glory of God in King Jesus in judgment will be on full display and you will give an account. But here's the wonder of the cross. Here's why the cross is good news. Jesus is not a malevolent king. He died so that in receiving him as king, all of your sins, even your sin of rebellion, would be vanquished, wiped out. That means today you can receive him as king. God is gracious. Let's prove that to us now. In his providence, our our gracious God has given you today as a gift to hear this. And you can live in happy, joyful submission to him today. So by the Spirit's call today, receive him as your Lord, as your King, as Messiah. Jesus is worthy of your worship because he is Messiah. That's the message of this passage. His humiliation, his shame, his suffering are not contrary to his kingship. They prove who he is. So, honor him. Worship him. Praise him because he is Messiah. Amen? Amen, let's do that in prayer. King Jesus, we worship you this morning. We have sung already that you were to be crowned with many crowns. We have sung already that all we have is you. We have sung already that you are the greatest treasure we possess. 